Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me, as is her wont, is Phoebe Watson. Hello! It's lovely to have you back, Phoebe, and it's a lovely time to have you back because obviously... Believe it or not, we are moving towards the end of Lent and into Holy Week. I can't believe how quickly Lent has gone. I know. I feel like I didn't manage to do any sacrifice. <laughs> I, I think I had a good start to Lent and then all of my organisation went to pot and I just couldn't get my like time sorted and I was going to bed late and all of my good habits were gone. Ain't that just the way? I know. And then it was always, next week I'll get, yeah. I'll get back on top of it. Next week I'll get back on top of it. And now... Well, that's what Holy Week is for isn't it? Exactly. You start strong, you end strong. (laughs) You can do a good fast and good Friday. Yeah, exactly. But yes, since this episode is going to come out, I think just before Holy Week, it is a good time to do a nice Holy Week themed episode, which is nice for us to have a chance to really tie in with the liturgical year. Yeah, it's great. We're going to be talking about The Cross and the Beatitudes by the Venerable Fulton J. Sheen. Which you might have heard previously um, about a year or two, two years ago. Phoebe was mentioning it in one of our episodes and begging me to go and read it. You have way too good a memory. (laughs) I can't remember which one it was. I think it was actually perhaps in one of our, our episodes about the art of the cross. Well, I guess it's easier for me to remember because I knew that you were nagging me to read it and I felt bad that I hadn't read it. And then when we finally... And it's a very, very short book. Yeah, when I finally got around to reading it, I read it in about like an hour or two. <laughs> so it was not the big investment that I was expecting. There are some investment books that I try and get you to read. This was not one of them. No, it's a really short book. And so we would... It, yeah, it's so short you might even call it like almost a chaplet or like barely a book even. The edition here is uh, under a hundred pages and it's fairly large font and well spaced out so a hundred pages is probably being a bit generous. We would totally encourage all of our listeners to read it. It's very readable, it's very profound and also very straightforward. Um, It's a little tricky to find. I think the easiest way for me to buy it was from uh, a secondhand book website. I think I used Abe Books, but any of the ones that kind of sell secondhand books are probably more likely to have it, or as Phoebe has, she has it on her Kindle. Yes, which does have the problem that you don't have a paper copy to hand to someone and bully them into reading it, Yeah, as I found. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So now we have a a paperback copy, and so now we can share it with as many people (laughs) as possible. And the format of the book is pretty much as you would expect from a book titled The Cross and the Beatitudes. It breaks down each of the Beatitudes and actually assigns it to one of the last seven words of Christ, those last seven phrases that carry us throughout the passion of our Lord. Yeah, and I think we're just going to say at this point that he leaves out the eighth Beatitude on the basis that in the language of St. Thomas Aquinas, The Eighth Beatitude is a confirmation and a declaration of all those that proceed. Because from the very fact that a man is confirmed in poverty of spirit, meekness and the rest, it follows that no persecution will induce him to renounce them, 
Hence, the eighth beatitude corresponds in a way to all the preceding seven. So what we're saying is if you are very familiar with your beatitudes and you were immediately picking up on the fact that there are seven last words and eight beatitudes and thinking, how does that work out? We've got you covered. You don't have to worry. <laughs> we're, yeah, so the, the eighth one is in some ways like the summation of all of the others. And it's a really beautiful devotion. I have always actually really loved the devotion of the, the last words of Christ. And I think for us, I know it will be different all over the world and in different places, but for Phoebe and I, certainly, we will not be able to attend uh, Easter services and Holy Week services in person, which is obviously very sad for us. But when... <laughs> such things arise, it is our duty to try and make the most of them and to capitalise on the spiritual opportunities that are available to us. And I think these kinds of devotions are a really good way for us to enter into the season. So whether it's the Stations of the Cross, whether it's We Follow the Magnificat, and it offers a range of these devotions. It has one on the Seven Last Words of Christ. There's also one on the Via Matris, which is essentially the Stations of the Cross from the perspective of Our Lady. Yeah, that's a beautiful one. Yeah. And then into Easter, there's even further ones. They have the Via Lucis. Lucas. Yeah, that's such a great comparison to the Stations of the Cross, actually, that yeah. you, if you meditate on the Stations of the Cross during Holy Week, then to meditate on the glorious way of Christ, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So these devotions that have been given to us that help us in, enter into the reality of Holy Week and then the Easter season, you know, um, as much as I love saying Stations of the Cross in a huge big cathedral, I'm not sure whether that will be able to happen, but I can still say them personally myself, or there's a chance we'll be able to go to a church personally and say some of them, um, just not as part of a congregation. So I think it's a wonderful opportunity to really enter into those devotions when we're still bereft of our usual services and masses. Yeah, and I think we also just wanted to refer back to the episode that we did last um, Holy Week mm. that looked at some of the musical devotions. So if you want something else along these lines, maybe go back to that one as well. Yeah, exactly. We pulled out some amazing works of classical music that can really help you enter into the season as well. So these kind of go together in some ways. Yeah, so this book then is part of that devotion in that it takes the Beatitudes and links them to the words, last words of Christ. And in that way, delivers this really impressive explanation of what the Beatitudes look like in motion and how each one of the Beatitudes was lived out by Christ in his passion and death. And I think for me, it's a really powerful read because in some ways, to me at least, the Beatitudes can feel a little abstract and I feel like you can fall into two camps, which the first one is to kind of reduce them down to platitudes, that they're sort of like motivational, inspirational quotes of like, not that they are, but they can be told in a way that is a bit insipid, like, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. It's almost like... Yeah, that's, like, I think, the easiest one to make insipid. In yeah. It's, oh, don't worry if you mourn because you will be comforted. Yeah, exactly. What they are are actually a challenge, but they can be used in a way which is to sort of blunten any real action in some ways that like, oh, don't worry about anything because it will be answered in this other way. Yeah, and I think then the other way in which they can be made abstract is by being too high an ideal. Like for me, often they feel like, 
but how on earth do I become that meek or how can I be poor in spirit in that mm -hmm. way yeah. and by becoming an ideal they also lose the form of action mm -hmm. in that you don't see the link of how to live them out yeah and I think Fulton Sheen does a great job of showing how we've lost the meaning of these beatitudes in our modern world that the reason why they don't feel immediately obvious to us is because our, our modern world rejects them essentially and has always taught us to reject them and so it's a really great opportunity to see them in action and see what it looks like when you make those beatitudes a reality and I love how he starts the book in the introduction he points out which had never occurred to me but he says about Jesus's ministry beginning with the Sermon on the Mount and then ending on Mount Calvary and that two pinnacles that bookend Jesus's earthly life before his resurrection. Yeah, I think that's such a beautiful example of what Fulton Sheen does so well, mm. which is we also did this book for our book club. And a friend of ours said on that, that the book isn't anything new, but it is truth. And it puts truth in a way that becomes new. Like those two facts of the, of the Mount of the Beatitudes and the Mount of Calvary. Yeah. We know those both, but when you see them side by side, you suddenly wonder how on earth you missed it before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think maybe we should say a little bit about Fulton Sheen as a writer. I have, I have listened to some of his sermons before, um, not a huge amount of them, but a few of them. And this is the first book I've read of his. I think I've heard, am I right, Phoebe, that sometimes his longer books are a little bit more difficult to get to grips with. I've only read two. And the other book, which I'm sure I have talked about before, but I will talk about again, is called The World's First Love. And it is longer than this. It's not a very long book. But that is a book on him looking at the place of Mary in the church. And it is one of the books that brought me into the Catholic Church. Mm. And he just portrays that entire truth so beautifully and poetically and with so much love for Our Lady. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he's a beautiful writer. He's very much of his time in that this was written in 1937 and he, there's quite a lot of references to communism and things like that, but it's also startling how new and current it is. Yeah, it, it amazingly doesn't actually feel that dated either. Yeah. It feels very prescient. Yeah, and so I think for the the rest of this episode, what we're going to do is, Phoebe, when we discussed this episode, was essentially like, we'll just talk through the whole book. And I was like, honestly, that would come close to it being an audiobook, And uh, we would probably need to buy the rights to it to do that. <laughs> I mean, I was joking, but kind of not too. <laughs> and like we said, we would definitely encourage people to read it in its totality. Even with us talking about it, we'll only be picking up a point here and there. But what we're going to do is we will take you through each of the Beatitudes versus the, the words that they, they relate to in Christ's passion. Um, but we're going to essentially spotlight some of them and talk about some of them more. And then for the other ones, we'll just give you the, the title, as it were, and then move on to the ones that we're spotlighting. So you will get a sense of how all of these Beatitudes and words linked together, but we're just going to deep dive into a select number of them. And I think we're going to start with you, Phoebe. <laughs> yeah, well, we're starting at the beginning with the first Beatitude and the first word of Christ, which is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the land, and 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Rachel, you'd pulled out a quote by Peter Kreeft on this. Well, yes, it was a, a talk he did, which was then quoted in another article that I followed, which also kind of paralleled each of the Beatitudes with the corresponding deadly sin. And again, obviously there are seven deadly sins and eight Beatitudes, so it doesn't quite like line up in the exact same way. But yeah, so I've also pulled out the corresponding deadly sin, which each of them relate to. So yeah, maybe I'll read that out as well, which is for the blessed are the meek, the corresponding sin is wrath. And he says, wrath wills harm and destruction. Meekness refuses to harm and peacemaking, because he also believes it relates to the uh, beatitude on peacemaking. Peacemaking prevents destruction. Yeah, which I think is such an important point of this chapter that Fulton says that the meek man is not a man who will refuse to fight, nor is he a man who will never become angry. A meek man is someone who will never do one thing. He will never fight when his conceit is attacked, but only when a principle is at stake. Mm. And it's that sense of... Christ on the cross taking all of the world's anger at his person and returning instead forgiveness. That that is the action of a meek man which returns good for evil. And that he then brings that to a challenge to ourselves and the way we live out our lives. That the living out of meekness is not to lack courage but that he says that our Lord is so much a master of himself that he is only angry when holiness is attacked, but never when his person is attacked. Mm. That I think we can take attacks on our person or what we think are due to us and model them with attacks on a principle and take all the anger that we have from an attack on something that we hold dear personally or what we think of as a personal affront and translate that into our anger at a principle being attacked. Yeah. Like, it is always right for us to defend a principle. Mm-hmm. But I think particularly with our online world and all of the anger that comes there, that we can take our anger at that attack mm-hmm. and mistake our anger. We think that our anger is because holiness is being attacked. Mm-hmm. But I think if we really look at it, much of that anger is at our person being attacked, at our conceit being attacked. And then we return anger for anger, and he very powerfully portrays how if one man punches another, you just have this cascade of violence. Mm-hmm. But the person who stops that violence and turns it is the one who turns the other cheek because he receives that anger and refuses to return it. So I just think that's a really powerful representation of what it means to live out the Christian life with courage Mm -hmm. and also how we can use that to grow in holiness. Another great quote from it is, that is the meaning of Christianity, hating that which is hateful in us and loving those who hate us because they are the potential children of God. Our enemy is often our saviour, Our persecutor is often our redeemer. Our executioners are often our allies. Our crucifiers are our benefactors. For they reveal what is selfish, base, conceited and ignoble in us. But we must not hate them for that. Hate them for hating us is weakness. And I probably should have read before reading that quote, an earlier quote which says, What right have we to hate others, since our own selfishness is often the cause of our hatred? I just really love that portrayal that the anger of others or their attack on us, we should be using that to 
find out our own sins and to discover how we fail and then to turn that around. Because I think we also very much seek self-knowledge, but we don't seek it in other people's responses to us. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. And I think because what you're saying there is, at least as I understand it, is that we have a tendency to obfuscate our own hatred as sort of self-righteousness. Yeah. When really we're refusing to acknowledge the failings within ourselves that we used to justify our hatred and I think it's so funny because Phoebe and I are also in a C.S. Lewis book club and as we were reading this book uh, for this episode and for this other book club um, <laughs> I described to a friend recently that I seem to have a Midas touch of book clubs. Everyone I talk to suddenly wants to set up a book club. So I've been um, multiple book clubs. But anyway, uh, we've been reading for the C.S. Lewis book club, the second book of his Cosmic Space trilogy. And this book is called Perilandra. And there were so many parallels, so much so that I kept getting mixed up which quotes were from The Cross and the Beatitude and which quotes were from Perilandra. But it's one of C.S. Lewis's science fiction books, actually. And within this particular scene, I don't want to explain the whole story because it's only kind of tangentially related to this podcast. But essentially, a man is facing down a demon at one point and he is about to do battle and to actually fight and grapple with this demon. And uh, as he's doing so, it says, Then an experience that perhaps no good man can ever have in our world came over him. A torrent of perfectly unmixed and lawful hatred. The energy of hating, never before felt without some guilt, without some dim knowledge that he was failing fully to distinguish the sinner from the sin, rose into his arms and legs till he felt that they were pillars of burning blood. What was before him appeared no longer a creature of corrupted will. It was corruption itself to which will was attached only as an instrument. Ages ago it had been a person, but the ruins of personality now survived in it only as weapons at the disposal of a furious self-exiled negation. It is perhaps difficult to understand why this filled ransom, not with horror, but with a kind of joy, the joy that came from finding at last what hatred was made for. As a boy with an axe rejoices on finding a tree, or a boy with a box of coloured chalk rejoices on finding a pile of perfectly white paper, so he rejoiced in the perfect congruity between his emotion and his object. Which I think is, it so demonstrates how it is only really within this actual context of facing down what is purely evil and not just failings of others and failings of ourselves in which justifies hatred. What really strikes me in this section is how what meekness or humility is not sort of an absence or a lying down or a lack of courage like you said. I was listening to Bishop Barron's talk on called the Tre Ore or the Three Hours in which he also gives a reflection on the seven last words of Christ and when talking about the question of Father forgive them he talks about this ability to turn the other cheek which is not just lying down and rolling over and letting something happen it is still standing um, with confidence in God I think it's so important that Fulton Sheen calls meekness self-possession and that is why they will inherit the world that it's not about an absence of assuredness it's just a, an absence of returning violence for violence and so he gives an example of 
Mother Teresa begging this business owner for a scrap of food for a, a street child. And the business owner spits in her face and she says, thank you for that present for me. Now perhaps something for the child. And there, there is that sense of like, that's not just walking away or that's not just being like, oh, I'm sorry, I won't bother you anymore. Or even like blessing him and going on your way. Yeah, that she's actually still standing athwart him and still asking for the good to come out of it and there is that kind of almost Flannery O'Connor thing of like I can get no credit for turning the other cheek because my tongue is always in it but like (laughs) um that there there is that sense of that disarming with goodness and not just with submission yeah and I think what's also really powerful of that is that he speaks of that as then drawing the world's hatred as well. Mm -hmm. That as Christ drew the world's hatred on the cross, so will our meekness draw the world's hatred. Mm -hmm. It isn't like a way out from all that anger. Yeah. But it is standing athwart that anger and refusing to return it. Yeah. And that it is in itself its own positive impact rather than a negative one i'm going to skip a little bit ahead because we're not we're not going to really reflect on the third one but there's a quote from the third word that i think is really important here the third one is about purity but he says purity then is not something negative it is not just an unopened bud it is not something cold it is not ignorance of life is justice merely the absence of dishonesty is mercy merely the absence of cruelty is faith merely the absence of doubt? And I think that's what's really good and why actually C.S. Lewis is so relevant here because I feel like C.S. Lewis really brings it to the fore what the positive power of good looks like um, and to not cast it in a way that we often do is simply an, an absence of evil. Yeah, I think that's how the world tries to portray our vote to portray the virtues yeah that meekness is merely the absence of fighting back yeah um in reality it is that the virtue is the stronger thing and the evil is the absence yeah absolutely this ties in very well to the second word so we're going to speak a little bit about the second word yeah the second one is blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy and the equivalent word on the cross This day you shall be with me in paradise. And it just speaks so beautifully about how we must give mercy in order to receive mercy. Not in some form of equation sense, Mm -hmm. but in that we must be giving out in order to receive. The law is as simple as that. Sow and you reap. Do not keep your seeds in your barns. Give it away. Scatter it over the fields. Do the foolish thing, dissipate it, so that even the birds may eat for your bounty. And lo, in a short time, you will find your seed increased five, ten, one hundredfold. But keep it in your barn, and the birds starve, and you have no increase. And it's that overflowing of mercy from the fount of mercy itself. Mm. And the comparison to Christ on the cross is so beautiful because in a way he looks not just at Christ but at the good thief Mm -hmm. and he talks about how the thief on one side is looking only to himself get down from this cross and take us with you seeking his own good Mm -hmm. whereas 
the thief on the other side rebukes that selfishness and looks to the Saviour and asks only, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in that outflowing of mercy, it says, because the thief on the right was merciful and compassionate, he received mercy and compassion. Because he was thoughtless of self, someone thought of him. Yeah. And I came across another quote from another set of reflections on the seven words. And it just points out how in that moment, it's another enormous example of us getting more than we asked for from God. So St. Ambrose says, The Lord always grants more than we ask. The thief prayed that Jesus would remember him. And Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Great. And Fulton Sheen just has this beautiful quote about us when we give mercy, that in a way you become another good thief. For that good thief is the one who steals paradise. Mm. And it's such a like turning on its head of the world's view of mercy as merely an absence to follow through with justice. Yeah. But rather it is the outflowing of forgiveness and the confrontation of the pain of the world that we don't want justice for ourselves. Mm-hmm. We want mercy for ourselves because we know what happens if we are faced with justice. Yeah. And if we know that about ourselves, we must then extend that to others. And I think the other part of it, which I think the example that Fulton Sheen gives about dissipating the seed really highlights is that often this returning of mercy for justice looks foolish to the world and in fact and in fact may go to waste that we will give mercy to people who then like in the parable in the bible then turn around and thrash their servant for owing them a couple of pence you know yeah and then like in the first beatitude or those who will turn around and return anger to us for showing Mm. them mercy yeah and our response to that must then be in the first beatitude of meekness and refusing to return that with anger absolutely and I just love that image of that like it can't be calculated you can't just offer mercy when it will do a good that you can calculate in terms of like if you're only dissipating your seeds so that it will grow and give you more then you'll be angry at the idea that the birds might eat it you know but actually that is a beautiful side effect of our mercy and entirely keeping within God's plan. And so then that line of, if you keep it in the barn, the birds starve and you have no increase. That like all of the offshoots and all of the other potential side effects, which we wouldn't even see, are are then deadened by our inability to share. And I think that's why Peter Kreef's comparison for the deadly sins is avarice. So grabbing and keeping goods for oneself rather than mercy, which is to give and share with another Yeah. And so, like I said, we're going to skim over the third word, but I'll just call out what the heading of it is. So it says, Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. And it corresponds to, Son, behold your mother, woman, behold your son. It's a reflection on Mary and her purity and her self-sacrifice. And obviously, this one's quite straightforward. Peter Grief lists the corresponding deadly sin as lust and how that divides us from God and how purity... And I think Fulton Sheen does such a great job of explaining 
purity and not in a very moralistic, legalistic sense. And he talks about the relationship of Mary and Mary Magdalene at the foot of the cross and how they stand together. So I think it's really beautiful, but we don't have time to talk about everything. So we're going to move on to the fourth word, which is um, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it corresponds to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think in some ways that doesn't necessarily strike me as an obvious connection between those two sets of speech from our Lord. But what Fulton Sheen goes into is he really explains the depths to which Christ, even before his passion, forsakes everything in the world. And I think for me, in reading the Bible, because I know Christ as Lord and God, and because he is by necessity <laughs> the central character of the Gospels, it's sometimes easy for me to forget how lowly he he makes himself. And, Definitely, yeah. And so, yeah, the fourth word, Fulton Sheen does a really good job of laying out all of the different ways that he entered into poverty. And quite fittingly, the corresponding deadly sin is pride, which obviously would stop people from entering into poverty of spirit and humility and selflessness. So what Fulton Sheen then goes into is the three kinds of pride that one can have. He says, our Lord not only preached poverty of spirit, he also lived it. And he lived it in such a way as to conquer the three kinds of pride. The pride of what one has, which is economic pride. The pride of what one is, which is social pride. And the pride of what one knows, which is intellectual pride. That last one is such a cutting one, isn't it? It's so cutting, because I feel like, especially as Christians who are really invested in their faith and invested in proclaiming the faith to the world and taking a sort of intellectual interest in theology and all of these kinds of things, it can be very easy to excuse your intellectual pride. And I know that I'm very guilty of that myself. And Excuse or even just pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, just think that that's fine, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and instead we have to look at the ways in which he cast off all of those things. And I think also for people who live comfortable lives, you know, he does point out that spiritual poverty doesn't just mean living in constrained circumstances or um, not having any things, but that kind of sense of detachment about them and that the thing that we really cling to is God. Yeah, he does very much challenge of whether or not you would be able to give it up for the kingdom of God. Yeah. Absolutely. There was a couple of things that I just loved in his descriptions, just reminding me again the extent of Christ's descent into the world. And that last year for Easter, we had the episode about Holy Saturday and the descent into the underworld, but that we can whitewash the descent into the experience of mankind. So he says, he was executed on a cross at public expense and buried in a stranger's grave. I love that line of at public expense. Yeah. <laughs> we paid to execute God, which is just like unbelievable. And then he also points out uh, cities abandoned him. Bethlehem refused him an inn. Nazareth drove him from its gates and Jerusalem stoned him. 
Because again, I think we can think of his group of apostles, we can hear about all of the people that gathered around him, and you know, you think of um, his entrance into Jerusalem at the start of Holy Week as this great like climactic moment, and of course it is, but then we kind of forget that, you know, what, what would it be like to have an entire city reject you? <laughs> and on that note, he even points out how the apostles utterly reject him. Yeah. Of the... Christ accepts being abandoned by Judas who calls him friend, by Peter who abandons him for a maid, like at the word of a maidservant, yeah. and then by the others who just sleep. Yeah. And I think we often look at Judas's betrayal of Christ, and then Peter's as well, but even just the other ones sleeping. Yeah. And that abandonment of Christ by sleep is really powerful. Absolutely. And that he just accepts it yeah. for our sake. And uh, and I think it, it's really interesting to reflect on this word from the cross because I think in some ways it might be the most contentious because there's all that like debate about is this despair and I think there's a really fascinating line about Christ experiencing the world as an atheist in that moment. Yeah. But Sheen says, even the midday sun hid its light as a symbol of the spiritual desolation of his soul. The Father had not really abandoned him, but our Lord restrained his divinity from mitigating even one drop of consolation, the bitterness of his chalice. The cry was one of abandonment, not one of despair. A soul that despairs never cries to God, just as the keenest pangs of hunger are felt, not by the dying man who is completely exhausted, but by the man battling for his life with the last ounce of strength. So abandonment is not felt by the ungodly and unholy but by the most holy of men our lord on the cross so powerful and what the chapter then goes on to show is that in particular this this phrase my god my god really answers that intellectual pride that we were talking about and is is in some ways the most painful to overcome it was hard to surrender divine consolation in a moment of agony to atone for the self-wise, the intelligentsia, and the conceited who refuse to bow their heads to God's wisdom, for the atheists who live without God, and for the godless who blot his name from the land of the living. And, you know, in, in comparison to that, the, he then highlights what it looks like to overcome that kind of intellectual pride and what it looks like in both people who have very simple faiths and also people who are learned and have and do contemplate the the deeper meanings of the world and it says blessed finally are the poor in spirit intellectually blessed are the humble and the teachable who like the shepherds know that they know nothing or like the wise men who know that they do not know everything Faith in God, faith in prayer, hope in Christ, devotion to our Blessed Mother, belief in the Eucharist and infallibility. All this may seem foolish to the self-wise, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men. That's so true. I think it's back to what we were saying earlier about Christ's poverty. Mm. I think it's also really telling that in his time on earth he could have been like the greatest philosopher and the most renowned teacher in educated terms but he instead decides to forsake that to reach the people yeah i think that's so true the pharisees were the great teachers and like the intelligentsia of their age and yet he rebukes them yeah and i think that's really important for us to remember that as much as we might wish it otherwise, being smart does not make you holy. 
<laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> um, and that it is only in poverty and poverty of of removing yourself from pride. Because if we are intelligent, if we are smart, who can we attribute that but to God anyway? <laughs> we, d- we didn't make ourselves smart. <laughs> yeah, it just comes back to that offering of all that we have and all that we are to God who gave it to us in the first place. And so we're going to just give you the title for the fifth word, which is, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall have their fill. And of course that refers to I thirst, which in the deadly sins can correspond to to sloth and and the refusal for action and exertion. Yeah, and then he just has a beautiful description of the zeal of Christianity and the desire to go out and convert the world for Christ out of love for those who are living without Christ. Yeah. That it's not even just love for Christ that drives us, but loves for, love for our fellow men and women. Yeah, absolutely. And like recognising... I've often thought that of you would love being Christian. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, like doing it not out of it like a, I, even in terms of like a calculated way of saying like, oh, if I convert X number of people, that means that I get X number of graces to get into heaven. But to actually say to the people in my life and to the world at large that you can see the good of God in them and think how much more it would be magnified and their joy and their happiness magnified in knowing where that goodness in them comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And then the sixth word, which I'm going to take, uh, is I think my favourite, and it is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And Fulton Sheen relates that to, it is consummated, which again, in some ways, doesn't necessarily strike you in the same way that I thirst clearly can relate to the thirst for, for righteousness. But what he is doing in this chapter is showing how Christ completed the task of bringing peace. And the cry of it is consummated is not a surrender. It is not even like an armistice treaty with the world that you would just sign on the dotted line and finish fighting. But it is actually a victory that that moment of saying it is finished or it is it is consummated is actually a victory cry. And it is it is the victory cry of the peacemaker who brings the world to the end of violence. And in The Deadly Sins, we it's related here to, to wrath, a bit like meekness. Peter Kreef doubles up on those two. But yeah, it's just such a lovely chapter. He talks a lot about how he says here, the Prince of Peace brings war, war against false peace, war against tranquility without order. And he has this amazing description of what peace is. And it is it is the tranquility with order. So that when we look at some oppressed nation that isn't fighting back, that doesn't mean that they're at peace because the order is incorrect. It is not rightly ordered in the way that God would want his people to dwell. He doesn't want them to be subjugated in an oppressive way. And and so it is not a peace that like trades away your principles in order to maintain an easier way of life. Yeah, it is not a peace that refuses to fight for what is right. Yeah. But a peace that comes from having fought that fight. And I think what he emphasises is having fought that 
fighting that fight within ourselves. That we're bringing the sword against ourselves to bring order as well. Absolutely, yeah. And he says, yes, if he had come down, there would have been peace, but a false peace. Our Lord stayed on the cross until it was finished. He would not compromise on his divinity. He would not compromise obedience to his father's will. He would not minimize the horror of sin. And I think that's so important to remember that if we rush in to paper over something, like even a disagreement with a friend, if you just say, oh, forget it, like, let's just go back to being friends or something, that that is a false peace and that it isn't a true, um, true reconciliation either. Whereas in that situation, the true peace comes from meeting each other with, with love yeah. and identifying the source of the disagreement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so in that way, not minimising the hurt either. Yeah. It takes courage to admit the hurt and not just paper it over. And yeah, he, uh, he says, we must beware of a false peace which ends in the destruction of peace. Such peace as the world gives it. Because we refuse to accept that false peace, because we refuse to come down from our cross and join in the false peace based on injustice, we bring down upon our heads the world's violence and its hate. But we cannot expect the world to treat us differently than it treated our Lord. And, you know, we, we see this theme of virtue drawing vice to it in a way, almost in a way that so that it can be destroyed. Absolutely. Yeah. That Virtue doesn't mean living a life of tranquil happiness, but fighting against the evils of this world in a way that is completely alien to what the world has taught us and therefore what is so innate within ourselves. Yeah, and then we come to my, I think my favourite quote in the whole book, which says, we must beware then of concluding a false peace of selling the saviour for 30 pieces of silver because he does not make us rich, of denying him before others because of the ridicule of maidservants, of sleeping during hours of great need, and, above all else, stepping down from the cross even after two hours and 59 minutes of the world's crucifixion. Oh, it gives me chills. <laughs> it's so good because I think it really reminds you that it's not... As good as it is to stand up to the world, it's not enough to do it just once or to do it when the case is black and white or to do it when it's only just a part of ourselves that we're willing to let go. But it has Or when we think we can win. Yeah, that it has to come at the full totality of that and that in some ways stepping down even one minute from the end is surrendering and relinquishing that victory. It's so representative of something that C.S. Lewis talks about a lot, this time in the Screwtape Letters, where it's from the, told from the point of view of a devil, and the devil is trying to tempt the human to set a time limit on what he will endure, mm. and then to give up on that endurance before the end. It doesn't matter how long you resist against it if you give in before the end of it. Yeah. Absolutely. And in fact, I you you got your C.S. Lewis quote in. I'm going to reference Tolkien. We, we are fulfilling our um, uh, uh, obligatory <laughs> uh, quotations. But 
Uh, I'm, as I mentioned in the last episode, I'm re-listening to The Fellowship of the Ring for the first time in, in, in a number of years. And this just reminded me so much of how Tolkien emphasizes how getting so close to the end and then not fulfilling it doesn't constitute a victory. So, you know, you have the battle with Sauron and Isildur has the ring and he doesn't throw it into the into Mount Doom, you know? And just that idea that we can't get all the way there and keep this one thing back, that that will end in a destruction of the peace, that line that Sheen has, we must be aware of a false peace which ends in the destruction of peace, that, you know, if you cling on to that bit of evil, the evil continues and then grows again. And so that it is consummated is that it must come to the very end. And as if you know the story of the Lord of the Rings, there is also grace and there is divine help that comes to us even when we feel like we fail, but that ultimately it is only over when everything that needs to be done is done. Yeah, but only by the grace of God do we succeed. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so will we move on to the last one then? Yep, yeah, we will. And the last one is, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the corresponding line from the cross, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And I just think it's such a beautiful correspondence between the mourning of this world and the comforting in the next. And that's very much emphasised in this in a way that doesn't say that we have to be sombre all the time. That Sheen does very much emphasise that we are also called to rejoice and called to hope. But the reason for that rejoicing and that hoping is because we have that promise of blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. We rejoice because of that promise, not in spite of it. Yeah. He asks, shall we place our joys in time or in eternity, for we cannot have them in both? Shall we laugh on earth or laugh in heaven, for we cannot laugh in both? Shall we mourn before we die or after we die, for we cannot mourn in both? We cannot have our reward in it, both in heaven and on earth. That is why we believe one of the most tragic words in the life of our Lord is the word he will say to the worldly at the end of time, you have already had your reward. I think that's so powerful. And I that, that phrase in the Gospels does always really strike me as very, it's just so sad, the idea that this is it and your reward has already been given to you and that's the reward that you were looking for. Absolutely. And yet what we are called to do is to unite ourselves to that death of Christ on the cross and that offering of his spirit to the Father, of Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, mm. and that act of trust. And he says in the fulfillment of this beatitude of mourning, he lets ring out over Golgotha's hills in a commanding voice the last word he ever uttered on this earth as a suffering man, and it was a word of joy and triumph. Father, into your hand I commend my spirit. It was the word of one who is strong and vigorous, no one is taking his life away. He was laying it down of himself, and nowhere does sacred scripture say that he died. Death was not coming to him. It was he who was going to it. 
death did not open its portals to him, he unlocked them of himself, for he knew whither he was going. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And it's that idea that we know where we are going, and we accept the mourning that comes with that for the joy that will come after. And yet it does also very deeply reflect on what that mourning must be. And like we were saying earlier in terms of these virtues drawing the vices of the world, he emphasises we must mourn first of all because the world will make us mourn if we follow the Redeemer's Beatitudes. If we practice meekness, the world will try and provoke us to anger. If we are merciful, the world will accuse us of not being just. If we are clean of heart, the world will shout prudes. If we hunger and thirst after justice, we shall not succeed. If we are peacemakers, the world will say we are cowards. If we are poor in spirit, the world will look down on us. And yet, in spite of all of that great drawing of suffering and mourning, he emphasises that our greatest mourning should be because of what our sins have done to him. If we had been less proud, his crown of thorns would have been less piercing. If we had been less avaricious, the nails in the hands would have been less burning. If we had travelled less in the devious ways of sin, feet would not have dug so deeply with steel. If our speech had been less biting, his lips would have been less parched. If we had been less sinful, his agony would have been shorter. If we had loved more, he would have been hated less. And that's just such a beautiful reflection for this Holy Week of the culpability that we really do have Mm. and the mourning that we should feel as a result of that culpability. Yeah. That we should grieve for our sins and the harm that they have done. And I think there's also an element which says that we shouldn't live a life that is perpetually fleeing sorrow. And for the last of the deadly sins, he, he relates this one to envy, which resents another's happiness and mourning, which shares another's unhappiness. To me, it kind of strikes me of how it is a rejection of what God is asking us to do if we're just, if we spend our lives looking around and saying, well, this person's probably happier than me because they have this, or, you know, why was this person given this thing and I was just given all of this sorrow? And in the addition of the cross and the Beatitudes that I have, which actually isn't in Phoebe's Kindle version, there is some quotes at the end of each section that kind of sum up the themes. And I laughed at the very last one. It says here, it is a good thing to have great sorrow, Or should human beings allow Christ to have died on the cross for the sake of their toothaches? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which is by Isaac Dinson. There is an embrace of the cross that if Christ, and this book is showing you how to put the Beatitudes into practice in, in our lives. And if we think, as we've mentioned before, that we can escape what was not escaped for our Lord, then we're not really putting these things into practice. And so there is an element which says that we must take up our cross, and that does mean sorrow, and that does mean trials. Absolutely. But then to end that on a positive note, he also emphasises that mourning is not despair. If we have crucified Christ, there is pardon. Father, forgive them. If there are tears in our eyes, they shall be wiped away. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Think not, then, that the beatitude of mourning means the enthronement of sorrow, for it ends in the triumphant flight into the Father's embrace. Amazing. I love it. Yeah. So good. 
So that is our almost audiobook of the, <laughs> the Cross and the Beatitudes, maybe the annotated version. <laughs> but hopefully it was helpful and hopefully it will encourage some people to read this book and that it will provide some useful reflection for this, this holy week. And we hope you have a very prayerful and holy, holy week. Absolutely. We are planning to try and enter into this season of prayer with a bit of intentionality. And so just as a little warning, we are going to attempt to either cut out or limit our screens as much as possible. We may need to use screens to see an Easter service online. Most likely will, sadly. <laughs> but we are going to try and step back from our screens for a little while, which may impact just when the next podcast comes out. It will be back very shortly. But yeah, just just as a little flag or a warning, if you want to know when it is back, you can always follow our Instagram at, at Risky Enchantment Podcast, or you can sign up to our newsletter, which is on the website. So if you go to rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast, it's just a little form at the bottom and you'll get an email when it comes back. But like I said, it's not a long break. We were just talking about how it's so difficult, especially in lockdown, to get away from your screens. And so we're just trying to enter into this Holy Week and Easter season with a little bit more intentionality and uh, just a little bit more, I guess, peace. But we look forward to talking to you in the Easter season. We've got plenty of really exciting things coming up. I'm, I'm genuinely really excited for the next couple of episodes. So we'll be looking forward to being back. I would say probably mid-April, but who knows? We'll see what happens. It could be earlier. We haven't figured it out. We'll figure it out eventually. But other than that, I think our last thing to say is just our usual question, which is, Phoebe, what are you enjoying at the moment? Well, this time I didn't have a panic halfway through the episode of trying to figure that out. I have been reading The Screwtape Letters, which I love dearly, and they are great reading for Lent. And side by side with that, I am very slowly listening to my way through the podcast Pints with Jack have a season on the Screwtape Letters where they talk through all of the chapters of the Screwtape Letters and how that should impact on our Christian life. So, Wonderful. it's been great. I know. I Because I'm listening to The Fellowship of the Ring, <laughs> I'm finding it hard to convince myself to also listen to podcasts at the same time. I just want to gallop through it. But those podcasts are definitely at the top of my list. I can't wait to listen to them. And then... What I'm enjoying is I recently bought Word on Fire published a book by one of their fellows, Holly Ordway, called Tolkien and Modern Reading, which I'm really enjoying. And it's wonderful to see Tolkien in, in a new light and not in this very sort of caricatured, backwards looking version that I think is sort of caught cultural imagination, which isn't it really isn't the full story of him. And then I also wanted to call out one other thing that I'm enjoying. I don't know whether I ever mentioned the, these just in terms of listening to them online but my brother got me a vinyl of it's the Oh Hellos which are a band and they write really amazing music which is sort of Christian informed but I don't think I would call it Christian music it's definitely a little bit like outside that sort of typical genre um, but they released four very short albums which are all based on the different winds so the vinyl has two of them, so one on either side, because they're relatively short albums. I think there's about six songs on each of them. And so he got me the one which is Zephyrus and Boreas. And uh, I'm really enjoying listening to them on vinyl. I love, again, that sense of stepping away from screens. And for it's a, I know I'm such a hipster. But anyway, I love listening to vinyl just because it lets you actually enter into that 
album experience, which is just listening to the music, not looking at anything else. You can't skip, you can't like put it on repeat in the same way. You just have to listen to it as a whole piece of work and I'm really enjoying it. So those are the things that I've been enjoying. Um, and as always, we wish you all the very best. Hope you have a holy week of Holy Week and enter into the joy of the, the Easter season. And we hope you have a spiritual, reflective and joyful time in all of that. Exactly. And we'll be talking to you again soon. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.